Hi everyone, I'm Laura Paskus, senior producer for the show Our Land, New Mexico's environmental past, present, and future on New Mexico PBS. It is September 22nd and you're listening to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. This week, I spoke with Erica Guys. She's the author of a new book, Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. In that book, she writes about how centralized water infrastructure and development have contributed to our experience of water extremes, which we see happening all over the world right now. Droughts and floods and droughts again. These are events driven by climate change, but she explains that they also have a lot to do with how we have built up our world. We have channelized rivers, buried creeks, destroyed wetlands, and paved huge portions of the earth. Part of the reason I love this book so much and the conversation you're about to hear is that Guys also writes about secret rivers, ghost streams, and hidden creeks. She writes about the ways in which we have hidden water away from ourselves. And she is hopeful we can reconnect, recalibrate our relationships with water. And one way to start is by being curious, asking questions, exploring your neighborhood, your city. And we can all do that, right? So here you go. Here's that conversation about the slow water movement and how communities can shape solutions and adapt to the changing world. Erica, guys, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I've been looking forward to reading your book since I saw on Twitter a long time ago that you were working on it. Um, It's titled Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. And I feel like that title is especially relevant for people this summer, whether you're in Pakistan or southern New Mexico, we're all grappling with these you know, sorts of big um, fluctuations. So I'm very excited to talk to you about this book. And in the book, you write about what you call the slow water movement. What is that? All around the world, there are people that I call water detectives. And these are hydrologists, ecologists, landscape architects, urban planners, historical ecologists. And they are thinking about water in a a bit of a different way. And they're asking, what does water want? And basically what they have determined is that what water wants is the return of its slow phases. So um, these are wetlands, floodplains, high altitude forests. And I don't think we really realize the cumulative impact that we've had. We've actually filled in or drained 87% of the world's wetlands. And we've intervened on two thirds of the world's largest rivers, Um, the area, of land covered by pavement in our cities has doubled just since 1992. So in all of these ways, our development is preventing water from enjoying those slow phases where it interacts with the land, it seeps underground, and that uh, does many things. It absorbs floods, it stores water locally for later. Uh, It's very important uh, to support biodiversity, other forms of life, and there's also a carbon storage component. Um, so slow water projects are what these people are, um, are working on. 
And basically they involve trying to return uh, these phases to some extent um, to water. And they are typically distributed across the landscape throughout the watershed, as opposed to our kind of centralized water infrastructure that we've come to know. Um, they work with <clears throat> water in natural cycles rather than uh, trying to control them. And there's often a community facing aspect. In some places, uh, the community is actually actively managing the water and the, the natural system in some way. Um, in other places, uh, like parts of the US, maybe there's more of an educational component, like there are places in Arizona where uh, water is recharged and that becomes sort of a recharge means putting it on the land so it can move underground. And those tend to be um, attractants for wildlife and human people to recreate. Uh, and so maybe there are signs that explain to the community what's happening there. So there are different levels of, of community engagement. Yeah. So whether it's sort of the centralized infrastructure or paving over of wetlands, development of wetlands, you explain in the book that this us first stance hasn't done humanity any favors and how in our relationships with water, privileging ourselves really isn't working. Can you talk about that a little bit? We have a tendency in the dominant culture to kind of do this single-minded problem solving. So, you know, we're floods, there are floods happening. And so, oh, we should build a levee or we should build a seawall or uh, we're running out of water. So we should build a big dam and bring in water from somewhere else. Um, but these single-minded approaches ignore the systems in which water functions, um, the ecosystems and water has relationships with soil and rock microbes, uh, beavers, humans. And um, if we ignore these systems, um, then we create all kinds of unintended consequences that we're beginning to see. And that's one of the main messages of this book. Yes, climate change is causing water extremes. Um, it's causing these really intense rainstorms and really long, intense droughts. Um, so I think it's great that uh, that message is getting out to the public. But one thing that I'm not seeing is that, in fact, our development choices have a lot to do with the uh, disasters that we are experiencing from these water extremes. And so, you know, in a way, that's good news because it's an opportunity to uh, conduct our development differently uh, to better work with water to yeah. reduce the impacts on us. Yeah, you write about um, you write about the how the dominant culture has moved away so much from observations of water and understanding how water works and moves and what it wants. I'm curious why you think that happened. Like how quickly did we move away from observing water and living with it toward, toward what we do now? I think there's really a colonial footprint in that actually. Um, because in places where people have long lived close to the land uh, and relied upon it for everything, they really had to understand how it worked and how to manage it sustainably and how to live within the means of what that landscape could provide. But with colonialism, you had Europeans uh, primarily going to places that were new to them and then trying to uh, assert their way of doing things uh, on top of the local landscape without really understanding it. 
And um, there was definitely a kind of othering of certainly the people they encountered there, but also um, the natural systems. It was kind of an us against them idea. And, you know, there are roots of this that go back farther um, to the enlightenment and the idea of the great chain of being, which prioritizes humans above other forms of life. Um, and even, you know, going back to the book of Genesis with uh, the separation of, of humans from nature, um, which isn't to, uh, you know, that that's important just because the Judeo-Christian tradition is what um, the colonizers kind of imported around the world. And, and that's not to say that, um, that I mean, there, there are Christians who believe in creation care. Uh, so it, it's just kind of... Um, the tradition of that and how it has been interpreted in the dominant culture. Yeah, we certainly see that here in New Mexico with our water infrastructure and certainly our relationships with water. Um, so I feel like this is a little bit of a hard topic to talk about, never mind plan for on a large scale, but you write a little bit about how we may need to retreat from some arid places as they become even drier. Do you feel like we as a as a culture, as a society, have the capacity for this sort of adaptation before it reaches like a crisis mode? That is a really hard question. Um, I'd like to think we do. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of evidence that we are very good at that. Uh, we tend to be quite reactive. Uh, but there are people who are writing about this. Um, there's a researcher at the University of Delaware named A.R. Siders, who's done work on managed retreat. She's looking more at um, coastal retreat uh, and sea level rise, but it can apply anywhere there are water issues. Um, I think in the West, there have been some attempts to um, predicate development upon whether or not there is water available for that new development. So California has had a law like that since 2003, but you know there are pretty easy loopholes around that, so it hasn't actually uh, functioned as intended. Um, I do think that uh, there may be sort of a, a natural um, migration to more water-rich areas as these water intensities uh, increase or, or water scarcity increases. However, you know, in both the Southwest and California, um, there, you know, the vast majority of water goes to agriculture. And some of that agriculture is uh, historic, um, you know, growing alfalfa or cotton with vast quantities of water uh, in the desert. And people have gotten used to that, um, but that isn't going to be tenable going forward. So I wouldn't say, you know, lots of people need to leave the Southwest or Southern California. We just need to take a serious look at how we've been allocating our water and probably change that. And of course, growing food is really important. I'm not saying we should get rid of that, but there are many, many things we can do uh, to save a lot of water that have so far been politically untenable and um, we need to have start having that very serious conversation. Yeah. One of the things um, that you write about and kind of a key point that really jumped out at me that I really 
appreciated throughout the book is you write about people stop seeing water as a friend as a consequence of trying to control nature for development or profit. And we've turned water from something that's a part of the cycle of life, something that we welcome, um, into something that can be feared or hated. But you also write about how it doesn't have to be that way. And I'd love for you to talk about that. I mean, it, what I'm talking about is a cultural shift. And in part, um, you know, we do see water as a threat from flooding and dominant culture. Uh, we also see it as a commodity. Um, and there's been this move toward privatization of water. Um, but even as, uh, you know, from utilities, it, it's kind of seen as this commodity. Um, and I think if we can shift to seeing water as an entity with agency, with relationships, then we can start to appreciate again and, and basic curiosity, you know, what is water doing in our neighborhood? Where did water flow historically? Where is it buried underground now in our cities? Um, that kind of engagement with water, I think can start to shift the way we think about it. And, you know, almost everyone I talk to has a favorite water body, usually from some childhood or formative experience. So I think it's within us to feel that kind of kinship with water, um, but we need to reconnect with it. And, you know, there are deeper questions about um, the kind of crony capitalist system in which we operate that is sort of at odds with um, seeing water and other uh, entities in nature as, um, as fellow travelers on this planet. Um, so that's that's kind of a bigger, a bigger conversation, but, um, I do think that there, that we can recalibrate within ourselves, um, our attitude toward water, uh, starting with curiosity, being curious about water. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned the water detectives that you write about. Um, and in your book, you write about secret rivers, ghost streams, hidden creeks. Um, how can we all be water detectives and what questions can we be asking about water and our relationship with it? Well, the majority of people these days live in cities and cities have paved over, filled in or put into pipes most of their streams, something like you know 70% on average. Um, and the streams that remain on the surface tend to be uh, really you know straightened and armored and not at all natural. Um, so we've kind of forgotten what water looks like and what water does. But there are lots of signs if we know where to look. Um, so one thing is if you go by a manhole cover and you hear water flowing, um, if that is flowing continually, particularly in the middle of the night, uh, that's a sign that that's a creek in the pipe as opposed to someone flushing. Uh, there are certain plants that love water like willows or horsetails, uh, cottonwoods. And um, one of the sources of my book told me willows are like a flag. You know, you see them and you know there's water underground. Um, sometimes you see places that are sort of perpetually damp and that might be, uh, you know, a seep or evidence of filled in wetland. Um, and then there are people in many communities who are doing work uh, that's called historical ecology. And so that's trying to map where the streams and wetlands were in their communities before they were altered uh, by humans. And the benefit of that is not just curiosity, but also 
if a city can have that in mind in their planning, then, you know, water tends to go where water wants to go. So if you fill in a wetland and build on top of it, that area is likely to flood. So if you know where water wants to go, then as you continue to develop your city, as buildings are torn down or replaced, you can take opportunities uh, to make small uh, areas of land available to water again. Well, Erica, guys, I loved your book. I think lots of people in our audience will love it as well. And thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. It's been so fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Laura Paskus. Find more environmental content on New Mexico and Focus as part of our show, Our Land, New Mexico's Environmental Past, Present, and Future. You can find Our Land all over the place on the PBS video app, Instagram, YouTube, and you can subscribe to Our Land Weekly. Thanks for listening.